Well, I have a question for you, which is, uh, what does it take to get you to take something seriously? There's lots of things in life that we pay close attention to that we have a lot of worry and concern about. But what would it take for you to take something seriously? And let me give you a little um, story of what I mean by that. I had uh, a couple years ago, I saw my um, primary care physician, and we always do blood work, and then the blood work comes back. One thing I really appreciate about him is that if there's anything off in like my labs, he always is like, hey, let's just refer you out to get this checked out. Um, in one of the cases, some of my like kidney levels were uh, not where they're supposed to be, so he sent me to a kidney doctor, and he said, yeah, your kidney is in kind of like, I can't remember the word, I'm going to call it struggle mode. Uh, it's, there's some damage done to it. Um, what do you think could be causing it? Tell me about your lifestyle. And I was sharing, you know, I get migraines pretty often, and usually my first you know, line of defense is like take ibuprofen um, to kind of get knocked down the pain. And I, it, when I had gotten my labs done with my primary care physician, it had been one of those clusters that come when the seasons change. So it was like a week or two of just like taking ibuprofen like every day. And he said, well, that probably knocked down your kidney. It's probably sensitive to that. So then he's like, don't do that anymore. And so then I switched to uh, just taking it um, when I was taking my prescription migraine meds because um, some of those uh, other painkillers, when they work together with uh, the migraine meds, that makes them work better. So, okay, I won't take it. It's first line of defense. I'll just take with my migraine meds. And then a year later, go to my primary care physician. There's my lab. He's like, your kidney's struggling again. So go to the nephrologist, kidney doctor. I didn't know what that was, but nephrologist. Uh, and he says, are you still taking it? It's like only with, and this time he's like, you cannot. This is how he got me to take it seriously. He said, you should only take ibuprofen if it's life or death. Because if you keep taking it, like you're going to kill your kidney and then you're going to have a lot of problems. And so that got me to take it seriously. It was like, you know, the first time I was like, okay, like I was taking it too much, I'll just take it a little. And then the second time it's like, you cannot take it because you're gonna kill your kidney, don't take it unless you're gonna die. So I took it very seriously. And so for you, how, you know, when we take something seriously, it's when we get this sense of how important it is or what the consequences are or what the, you know, the results are gonna be or whom it will affect. Maybe it's an illness or a disease or a bad lifestyle. You know, when somebody says to us, if you don't stop this, or if you don't start doing this, this is what's going to happen. It's kind of like that fork in the road of like, do you want a kidney in a year, uh, or you know, take this seriously? And in this passage we're looking at for day, today in uh, Exodus chapters 32 to 34, um, this whole series is called Redeemed for God. And we saw last week how God uh, had brought the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and this whole goal, he said the whole time was, I'm going to bring you out to this mountain so that you may worship me, so that you may serve me. And so he's bringing them out of Egypt. He's redeeming them from slavery for something. They're coming, being saved from something, being saved for something. It's for relationship with God. And last week we looked at the Ten Commandments and how that was kind of like the, the basis of, hey, this is what I'm, God's vowing to them and what he asked them to vow in return of, like, I'm the God, I'm the God who saved you, and now here's what this relationship looks like. And this week, uh, it's kind of a, a, a tough passage because they've had a pretty crazy couple months. And chapter 32, verse 1, we're told this, When the people saw that Moses, this is the man that God used to bring them out of slavery, when Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, so I'm just going to pause there. So Moses, what's happening here is, uh, we've skipped a couple of chapters. Last week we were in chapters 20, uh, 19 to 24. Now we've jumped to 32 because in chapters 25 to 31 and then in 35 to 40 to the end, 
uh, the same thing is happening, where Moses is up on the mountain with God, brought them to Mount Sinai, and he's getting these instructions from God for uh, how they're going, God's going to basically dwell among them. The whole goal was not like God was going to be um, absent from them, but he's like, I'm going to dwell among you. I'm going to be present with you. And so Moses up on this mountain basically getting instructions for uh, the structure that God is going to dwell in, which is going to be called the tabernacle. And there's all these very specific ways. It's basically a tent, um, kind of a, a fancy tent. Uh, and it's very beautifully decorated on the inside. There's various um, furniture in there for worshiping God. And then there's this courtyard. And only certain people are able to enter the courtyard. And only certain people are able to enter the tabernacle. And then only like a couple times a year is somebody able to enter the very innermost part of the tabernacle where God's presence dwells. And so God's given him all these instructions and he's saying, okay, you're going to have this tent, this tabernacle, and you're going to have these priests and they're going to be the ones that are going to offer sacrifices on your behalf. And there's all these instructions for how God's going to dwell among them. And so chapters 25 through 31 was Moses on the mountain getting these instructions from God. And then what we read in 32 verse 1 is, when the people that saw that Moses was delayed in coming down, now we're going to hear what they do as they're waiting for Moses. You know, it's kind of like, meanwhile, Moses is up on the mountain. Meanwhile, down at the bottom of the mountain, the people are waiting on him and wondering what is going on. And one thing, one of the warnings we see in this passage is that no matter how much God has done for us in the past, today it's possible to harden your heart against him. That today we need to ask, is my heart soft? and responsive and open to him. And that's warning is given in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, talking about the people that we're reading about in Exodus, that their hearts were hard, and God did so much for them. They heard good news. They had God save them. All these mighty acts, the, you know, the, the cross of the Old Testament was God bringing them out of Egypt uh, from slavery, and they've seen all this happen. They've had this crazy couple months, God <coughs> providing for them, protecting them, leading them, and yet now today, is their heart going to be hard towards him? And so there's no coasting in the Christian life. There's no set it and forget it. Relationships take work. Relationship with God takes work. And a really helpful phrase is that grace is opposed to earning, not opposed to effort. Grace is, grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. That God, we don't earn God's love, but there's an effort on our part to have this healthy, ongoing, personal relationship with him. And so the question I want to give you today is, are you taking God seriously? Are you taking God seriously? Are you taking the sin you do, the things we do in our life that separate us from God, are you taking that seriously? Are you doing something about it? Are you taking God seriously? Are you taking sin seriously? And so these first six verses, chapter 32, verses 1 through 6, uh, as I said bef before and after what we're about to read, Moses is getting instructions. But then meanwhile, he needs gone like at least a month. So it's not like he was gone for an hour and they're like, what happened to Moses? It's like, it's like a month and they're down on the bottom being like, what's going on up there? What should we expect here? Let me read to you chapter 32, verses 1 through 6. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. 
And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And so this golden calf that Aaron makes, the people are like, where's Moses? Make us some gods. And Moses, or sorry, yeah, Aaron takes all their gold, the jewelry and whatnot, which, by the way, is some of the stuff they were given as they were leaving Egypt, if you remember that, that the, the Egyptians were like, please go with our blessing. And this was meant to be used to worship God. Some of this stuff will be used later to make the tabernacle we were just talking about in the furniture in it. But then they use it to make this God uh, out of gold. And why a golden calf? Well, several of the Egyptians' gods, Egyptian gods were represented by bulls, uh, which, you know, a calf would be a baby version of a bull. And so, you know, we have this question, uh, you can take Israel out of Egypt, but maybe not Egypt out of Israel. That they've had this impression, 400 years living in Egypt, that is now, oh, this is what gods look like. We build them in the shape of bulls. And notice what happens. They're waiting. They're impatient. And so what happens, they go back to a rut that is familiar. Of we, know, we don't know what's going on with Moses. We're getting impatient. We're kind of getting nervous here. Like, let's go to what we know, to what's familiar. Let's make this golden calf. And we're told in Acts chapter 7, uh, when describing this situation, it says, in their hearts they turned to Egypt. That what happens is we don't know what's going on with God, we don't know what's going on with Moses, but let's kind of turn back to how we know God's work in accordance with what happened in Egypt. And we saw them do it earlier about food. They said, what would you lead us out here, Moses? Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you led us out here to die? At least back in Egypt we had food to eat, we had cucumbers and... I don't know, I like cucumbers, so I don't know why that was on the list of top ten things Egypt offered, but we had cucumbers and meat. And so we can ask ourselves, where do you turn when God isn't fast enough? Where do you turn when God isn't fast enough? And it's kind of like when we get in those situations that are familiar, and it's like, oh, this is what I used to do in this situation, like before as a Christian, and we can easily go back into those ruts. We might turn to, I don't know, Netflix or TV or looking at our phone or might turn to some sort of substance, smoking or alcohol, or anything that we go to, like, I need to relieve this stress, this anxiety I have, and God's not working fast enough, and so I'm turning to something to help me through that. We go to what's familiar. Now what we see is that in verse 7, so chapter 32, verses 7 through 35, what happens is God notifies Moses, look Moses, you're up here getting these instructions from me, the people down there, he describes it as they've corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly from my commands. Remember last week, what are the first two of the Ten Commands? No other gods before me do not make a carved image of me or anything else. So what happens here is they put this God, which they have actually called the Lord. They say, this is God, the Lord who brought us out of Egypt. So they're making an image of God. They're reducing him. but they're, So they're worshiping, they're trying to like worship the true God, but in a false way. But then also they're like giving credit to you know something that isn't God Himself, and they worship the golden calf. And what is to we're told is they say these are your gods. And then God says they're stiff-necked, which is a way to describe a beast of burden that doesn't listen to what the person leading them wants them to do. Uh, that they're too stubborn to wear its master's yoke or do what its master says. And then what He tells Moses is His wrath burned against them, his anger, and he says, I'm going to consume them, consume them, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you, Moses. I'm just going to start over and make a great nation out of you, Moses. And what God keeps telling them is, hey, Moses, uh, your people down there are doing this. Moses, 
your people are doing this instead of saying, Moses, my people are doing this. And so God is showing this is putting their relationship in jeopardy. What they're doing is not, not good. And what we've been told before is that God said, you will be my people, chapter 19, you'll be my people if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, which means this is exclusive. It's only me that you're worshiping. The very first thing is I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt, that they didn't need to earn their salvation, that they were saved and redeemed. And then God says that this relationship's going to work. It's what it looks like to be in a relationship with me, that you love me, that you it's exclusively and only me. And then they said, they committed, we're going to obey it all. All this stuff you said we're going to do, yes, God, we're going to do it. And the ink is barely dry on the marriage certificate of this wedding that kind of happened last week, God's vows, their vows. And they're already running off and sleeping with another God. That God said, this is what I want. We agree to do it. And they are already turning from him. And God said, they turned away from me so quickly. And he's trying to show them what, what this does to their relationship with him, what they deserve, what the penalty is for cheating on God, for committing adultery with God, which is the word that throughout the Bible is used for what happens when we worship something other than God, when we've committed to him, it's adultery, it's being unfaithful to the relationship. And so God says, leave me alone, Moses, which means, Moses, let me consume them. And he's basically giving, it's like Moses' call, like he's asking permission, you know, God doesn't need permission, but he's like, Moses, Leave me alone, let me consume them. And it's saying, Moses, you know, this is your call. And so the question is, will Moses let them be alienated? Or will he mediate between them? Will he take the offer for himself to become a great nation? Or will he help this relationship between God and Israel be reconciled? And in verses 11 through 14, we see in chapter 32, we see Moses doesn't leave God alone. But instead, he prays for mercy. Don't destroy them. Why? He gives you a couple of reasons. Why shouldn't you destroy them? Because they're your people. They're not my people. I know I led them, but God, they're your people. Remember, and you save them. You put all this work into this, and you save them. Don't destroy them now. And he says, your name, your, thirdly, your name, your reputation is on the line. Like you brought them out of Egypt, and now all these people have seen that, all these other nations and people surrounding. What are they going to say? Like, oh, God wasn't good enough, he wasn't big enough, powerful enough to keep them alive, that they just died here. And fourthly, he says, remember your promises. Remember the promises you made to this family and this nation. And if you're ever curious about when the Bible says things like, uh, whatever you pray in my name, I will do, that doesn't mean like we end our prayers saying, in God's name I pray, and now he has to do it, or in Jesus' name I pray, and now he has to do it. That this, what Moses is doing, is praying in God's or Jesus' name. It means that praying in alignment with his character, with his promises, what he said he will do, and what he's done in the past. And so Moses, it's not like God forgot these things, uh, but Moses is now praying, God, look, here's all the reasons that you wouldn't destroy them. He's praying in alignment with God's character, God's nature, and his promises. And he basically asks, would you relent from doing this to him? Because that's the kind of God you are. Remember, don't destroy them. Don't relent from destroying them. Because that's the kind of God you are. You're the kind of God who saves, who took them, who made these promises to them. In verses 15 through 29, Moses comes on down. And what we see is that Aaron led the people into sin. Aaron is actually Moses' brother, who God kind of brought them together to uh, lead them, uh, lead this people. But then Moses is gone, and then Aaron leads them into sin. And Moses comes down to lead them into repentance, which a repentance that's kind of a, that's a church word a bit, but it basically means a U-turn. Like you're going this way, and you make a U-turn and go the other way. Stop going that direction. 
And Moses confronts them. He takes, so he has these stone tablets. We talked about last week how the Ten Commandments were written on these stone tablets. Moses had them on the mountain with them. And these are like the covenant with God and his people, these commitments they made to each other. He comes down and he breaks the stone tablets, which is symbolic of showing this is what you've done to this relationship. You've broken it. It's like ripping up the marriage certificate. So he confronts them and he shows them that their idolatry, that's what this is called when you worship something that isn't God, but you worship it as God. It's called idolatry. And he's showing them that this is what this does. When you turn away from God like this, it breaks this relationship. This is serious. Take this seriously. This isn't just a like little thing you do, a little mistake you did, like, oh, sorry, God, like, won't happen again. No, this is serious. You've gone outside of the covenant you had. You've slept around on God. And we see that Moses, Moses takes drastic action, that actually he calls people and says, who's on God's side? And these people come, and then they go throughout the, the nation of Israel, and they kill off all the people that were still worshiping this idol, who had led the people in this, which shows us, and this is why part of what, this, what I wanted us to be thinking about is taking God seriously, taking sin seriously, is we might be like, whoa, what, what, well, calm down, Moses. What, what's the big deal? Why do you have to kill people off? But often we're like, God, you're overreacting. And we should assume when we think God's overreacting that actually we're underreacting, that we need to take sin more seriously, take turning from God more seriously. And then Moses gives his second prayer. His first prayer was, God, don't destroy them. And let me read verses 30 through 35, chapter 32, his second prayer. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And so Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I'll blot over my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the, the one that Aaron made. And so this word atonement is going to come up later. But atonement is a way, it's basically paying for forgiveness that if there's a relationship and something has happened that breaks that relationship, and let's say this is the one who broke it, who caused that separation, somebody needs to pay for what was done here. And either it's going to be the person who did the wrong is going to kind of get payback, they're going to have to earn their way back in the relationship, or the one who is wronged is going to have to say, I'm going to pay for it. And atonement is how that gets paid for, how the person who is wronged pays for the wrong done to them. That's how forgiveness works, that... If someone forgives you, they're not getting you to pay them back for what you did to them, but they're saying, I'm just going to take this. I'm basically just going to absorb this damage, and I'm not going to let it come between us. I'm going to release you. That's making atonement. And Moses says, forgive them for their great sin. And then God says, no, I'm going to blot out the ones who sinned against me. And he sends a plague. And this whole blot out language is that kings could take a census and they'd have a name like kind of a book of all the names in their kingdom, and God says, I'm going to blot them out, that this is a great sin, and they have not turned away from it. And so we need to understand how serious this is, that they have broken their covenant vows, that they have been unfaithful to God. Now we see, starting in chapter 33, verses 1 through, actually it's the whole chapter, verses 1 through 23, 
what they deserve is separation. So what we saw in this previous section is what they deserved was destruction. And now we see in this section, chapter 33, what they deserve is separation. And God tells Moses in the first verse of the chapter 33, look, if I go with you, Moses, if my present is, presence is with you, I'm going to consume them because these people are so stiff-necked and so sinful that it's dangerous for me to be with them. And so I need to separate so that they will not be consumed. And he tells them, take off their jewelry that you, uh, you know, other jewelry that they used to make the golden calf. And it's like kind of, you know, if you're going to a funeral, you wouldn't be all like, uh, I mean, we, I know we wear like f funeral clothes, but we don't go like, I'm going to look as pretty as I can. It's like mourning and we want to enter into that. And he's like, take off your jewelry. You need to mourn for this thing that you have done, this sin you've committed. And later, as I said, this gold will be used to create the place where God will dwell among them, the tabernacle. And then we're told in 7 through 11 how Moses met with God, that there was like this tent of meeting is what they called it. And this was um, not, this wasn't the tabernacle, the tabernacle's a tent too, but the, this was the tent of meeting and it was, you know, smaller scale and stuff. But Moses would go out there to meet with God and he would talk to him as a friend face to face. Didn't mean that he saw like God directly, like, whoa, Moses, like, you know what God looks like? Does he have a good skin complexion? Uh, is he pale like Mitch? No, he didn't see like his face like that, but it's like direct, talking directly as a friend. I'm not necessarily seeing his face. Um, and Moses would go out here and talk with them. And we see that this is something that's been happening ever since they left Egypt, that God has been present with them. There's this tent of meeting, and God's presence is shown to be in it when there's like this pillar of cloud in it, and it gets filled with God's uh, glorious presence. And so God has made uh, himself present with them to go with them. And so that's what makes Moses' third prayer important. This is verses 12 through 17 of chapter 33. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, and God said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? So Moses' prayer is like, God, you know, I know you're leading us to this land, the land of Canaan, now the land of Israel, which terrible things are happening in right now. Um, but this is the land that God gave the people of Israel. And he's saying, I'm bringing there, I promised it to you. And Moses is like, we don't want the land without you. Don't bring us from this spot to that land if you're not going to go with us. Because what makes us distinct, it's not that land, it's that you're with us. That your presence is with us, that you dwell among us, that we know you in this way. And he's like, what's the point? Uh, and he he, he bases it, God, would you do this, saying, you know me, God. If I found favor with you, please, you know, do it on my behalf. And he says, what's the point if you don't? And he, Moses says to them, you is what? You, you are what makes us special and distinct. You are what makes, yeah, not is. You are what makes us special and distinct. We don't want the land without the Lord. And so a question sometimes for us, as we could ask, is would we want heaven without God? Would you want to be there if God wasn't there? Or do we want God's blessings without having God himself? And we can ask ourselves, like, God, I just want you to do all this stuff for me. And it's like, but Moses is saying, 
take it all away. It doesn't matter if we don't have you. We don't want the blessings without you. And then he continues his prayer. In verse 17, we'll start. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you've spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy in whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So Moses prays, show me your ways. Then he prays, show me your glory. And God says, I'll show you my goodness. And this shows us that they're all connected. God's ways and God's glory and God's goodness are all connected, and we'll see in just a little bit. In chapter 34, we see, okay, God puts him in this little spot in the rock, and he says, you can't see me directly, and he asks to see his glory, but he wants to. He says, you're going to get to see my goodness. And glory, you can think of, and we especially see it here, glory is the outward shining of the goodness of God's inward being. So glory is the outward shining of the goodness of God's inward being, that God is good, and when that shines out from him, it's radiant, it's light its warmth and so glory is the outward shining of the goodness of god's inward being which is seen in the ways that he treats sinners so glory outward shining of his goodness which is seen in the ways that he deals with sinners and what god acts like more clearly reveals god than what he looks like and these two verses we're going about to read in chapter 34 verses 6 and 7 they're the last ones we're going to read uh, in this passage for today these you can think of as the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. John 3.16 is probably the most famous verse in the New Testament, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And Exodus 34, 6 and 7 are like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Twelve times in the Old Testament it's quoted um, in various cases where people are praying to God. Even one time somebody gets mad. Uh, that God is like this. Like, I knew you would forgive people like this, and it's the prophet Jonah. And so let me just read these verses, and I'll, we'll just go chunk by chunk. This is God letting Moses see his glory, by letting his goodness pass by him. So chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God. And so, just you know, pause each word, that this is God saying, This is, this is God. But my personal name that you normally by is the Lord. And he says it twice. Make sure he hears it. Uh, and he's saying, I'm in personal relationship with you. It's almost like um, I call my doctor, Dr. Hoffman, and he's never said to me, just call me Marcel. And it's, like, it's almost like I'm God. You know, I don't know. That's like who God is. But it's like, call me the Lord. That's like my personal name. And then he says next, the, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. And merciful can speak to God's compassion that his heart is drawn out to us in our need. And then he says, merciful and gracious, that God gives what we don't deserve. Grace means that not only do we not get what we deserve, but we get the opposite of what we deserve, that God doesn't just say, I'm not going to punish you. I'm not going to give you this destruction and the separation that we've seen they deserve. I'm not going to give you that. Actually, I'm going to give you the opposite of what you deserve. I'm going to give you my presence and I'm going to be with you. 
We saw in chapter 33, verse 19, we we're reading what God says to him. He says, I'm going to be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll show mercy on whom I show mercy. Meaning that he's handing it out to people who haven't deserved it, who haven't earned it. It's his choice upon whom he shows grace and mercy. And so it's not that Israel is any better than Egypt, that they didn't deserve what happened to them. We show, look, they're worshiping false gods. God says, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to separate from you. But look, I'm going to put grace on you. But mercy, you're no better than anybody else. And then we say, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, which means he is patient. Or an old school word is long-suffering, that God doesn't have a short fuse, and that he is steady. And then we read abounding in steadfast love, or you could say loyal love, but he's abounding in it. This is his love, that uh, special love that God shows to people with whom he's in covenant relationship with, and his love for his people to meet them in their dire need. And I've called it before, God's no matter what love, that these are my people in their dire need, no matter what, my love is steadfast, it's loyal, and I'll meet them in their dire need. And lastly, abounding in faithfulness, these five attributes, that God is true, he's trustworthy, he's reliable, he's loyal, he keeps his word and his promises, he does what he says. And we might feel like that was, that you know, these are some of the happy parts of what these verses say. And verse 7 continues that, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And you could actually, it would be more appropriate to say keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations to the thousandth, that's a really hard word to say, one zero zero, wait, one zero 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 generation there, since I can't say it. But it's like, we can't even imagine that. I mean, people tracing their genealogies back, what do you go back? I don't know what the longest one is, 10 generations or something. But it's like a thousand generations. So God's saying, look, my steadfast love is, it's steadfast. It's going to stick with you. And then he says, I forgive. And he uses all three of the words in the Old Testament used for basically breaking God's law. Iniquity, transgression, sin. Sin you could think of as missing the mark. Like, okay, God said to do this or he said not to do this. I missed the mark. Uh, in, iniquity you could think of as kind of this, how we get kind of crooked and wicked. We kind of become deceivers and sin kind of contorts us into what we're not supposed to be and transgression is like kind of the highest one of all it could only be forgiven on one day of the year the day of atonement and it's basically people who say i know the covenant they have with you and i've heard some people describe it as this is basically people saying giving the middle finger to god and being like i know what you've said and i just don't care that's what a transgression is and he's like it doesn't matter how small how big sin iniquity transgression all of it i can forgive even the worst of it and he's keeping steadfast love to the thousandth, thousandth, I did it, generation. But then he says later in that verse, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, and look at the contrast to the third and fourth generation. And the Bible teaches that people, each person is guilty, responsible for their own sin, that children don't pay for their parents' sin, parents don't pay for their children's sin. But he, describing this like, Sin has a way of twisting a family. And often in Israel in that time, you might have three or four generations living together. And so it's like this sin, if you're going to get twisted like this, it's going to twist your family. It's going to infect the whole thing. And then just skip down to verse 14 that God says, it's one other attribute, one other quality of God. Verse 14. For the, you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, 
is a jealous God. And so showing us God, when he's in like a marriage partnership, a covenant relationship with a people, he doesn't want anybody else getting in there. He doesn't want his covenant partner sleeping around, committing adultery. He doesn't stand for it. And yet, then what we see in verses 10 through 28, that we heard all this stuff, God's not going to clear the guilty. What they deserve is destruction and separation. And I'm a jealous God. I will not let people cheat on me. This can't go un, you know, unpunished. But then what we have in verses 10 through 20 is God forgives them, and then he renews their covenant with them, which is completely undeserved and unearned. So I want to give you this big idea to summarize this this section, that God's glory is seen in how he loves us anyway. God's glory is seen in how he loves us anyway. And you might think that sounds like an incomplete sentence, but it's kind of like whatever you would put before that, the people of Israel, all the stuff they did, God loves them anyway. And him revealing his character, the outward shining of his inward goodness shown in the way he treats people who have done a great sin that we see in this passage is that God loves them anyway. And he loves us anyway. Um, he doesn't love the whole world the same. There's God's general love for all people, but then there's the love he has for those who trust in Jesus and are adopted into his family, who become his people. And he loves us anyway. He loves the whole world anyway. And God's glory is seen in giving sinners way better than they deserve. It's seen in how he treats sinners, how he responds to our sin, our idolatry, our rebellion, our hard hearts, our stiff necks, how he remains in relationship with us in spite of us and how he loves us anyway. And if we think Israel, like, man, how could they do this? Like, they had all this stuff they saw God do. They had a crazy couple months of God working on their behalf. But how often do we do what God clearly forbids or don't do what God clearly commands, even though we might have had just the best year of our lives of seeing God work in our lives, seeing his presence? In the heart of this story is chapter 34, verse 9. Moses said, If now I found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. And I would, you know, some translations do words differently. This next word is for, but perhaps a better one would be even though. So, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, even though is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. It shows us that God is an even though God, that it's not up to them, if it is up to them, this relationship won't work. And they get in this mess of their own doing, but then God takes care of it. We have an even though God, that even though this is what we're like, God loves us anyway. And Moses shows us what we need. He acts as a representative with God for the people. He acts as a mediator, bringing about forgiveness. He goes to offer atonement and request forgiveness. And he even offers himself as a substitute. Blot my name out instead of theirs. But Moses cannot die for these people, for their sin, because he has sin of his own. And as we go next week, we'll finish up this series, and we go through all the instructions God gives for how he might, how he needs to, what needs to happen for him to dwell amongst them. You might be like, God, why, why is all this necessary? And when you see this story, you're like, oh, that's why all this is necessary. Because it's very hard for a holy, righteous God to dwell amongst the sinful people without destroying or separating from them. When we look at Jesus, he's all those things that Moses was, and even what Moses couldn't be, that Jesus is our representative, that he comes to make atonement so we can be forgiven, that he's our mediator, that he can offer himself 
as a substitute because he has never committed the great sin that these people committed. And he takes our destruction and our separation in our place. And if you ever think that it's like Old Testament, angry, grumpy God, and then good thing Jesus came because then he's like, let's just slow down God and give him another chance. Like, can't we love him and forgive him? No, when Jesus comes, John 1, 14, that it says uh, that the, the word referring to Jesus became flesh and the word is and tabernacled amongst us, that this tabernacle that Jesus dwells among us. And then what it says is that we have seen his glory, him revealing God's glory, that this glory that we just saw, the outward shining of the goodness of God's inward being, is that Jesus is that. If that was to become a person, which it did, it's Jesus showing us this is how God treats sinners. Jesus is the perfect revelation of how God treats sinners. You maybe are looking at this and wondering why it's here. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to use it because I've, I've taken too long to say the other stuff. But let me say this. So let's just have to be some other time a mystery. But one thing that we can, what we often do is two things. Is we might say sin isn't that bad and God isn't that good. Is that we minimize sin and we minimize God's goodness. And with our sin, we try to convince ourselves we're not that bad. We deny it. We hide it. We blame it. We compare. We hope the good outweighs the bad. We hope that, you know, just, just come on, if you knew my intent, you know, or what my background is, you would know why I did that thing. It's not really my fault. And Moses doesn't minimize what they, what they did. He said, this is a great sin. And so he takes sin seriously. We need to take sin seriously. We are all covenant breakers with God and able until we're able to see and admit that problem, we can't deal with it. So we'll say sin isn't that bad, but we also say God isn't that good. That we think we can measure up to his standard, or we just hope he'll kind of overlook the bad, he'll overlook my sin, and just look at the good. But that would not be a good person. That A good judge would never just be like, okay, you murdered somebody, but you had like 20 years of not murdering somebody, so hey, you can get off, and you know that's not how it works. A good judge will see our sin. And so we need to take sin seriously. We need to take God seriously. What I said earlier is, instead of thinking God is overreacting to sin, assume that we are underreacting to it, that we lack a right sense of the badness of sin and the goodness of God. And the cross that we have on that window shows us both, that this is the badness of sin. This is what is deserved for it, destruction, separation from God. And on that cross, when we look at it, we see the ugliness of our sin put on the outside of this is what it does to our relationship with God. And so we see the badness of sin, but we also see the goodness of God that he was said, no, I'll make atonement. I'll pay for it. You don't have to be destroyed. You don't have to be separated. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to make atonement and take care of it and forgive you. And only then when we see, when we take sin seriously, when we take God seriously, only then do we take Jesus seriously what he did for us, paying for it in our place. And we can rest and relax and rejoice because we haven't, even though God, even though he has every reason to destroy us and separate from us, he's an even though God who loves us anyway. He's proven it in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as people who are imperfect, fallen short. We have our own sin, iniquity, and transgression that we've gone our own way so many times. But you are an even though God who loves us, who forgives us. 
So you help us rest in the fact that you love us anyway. In your son's name we pray. Amen.